Well, today we're in John 19. Bible's there if you have them. Often in the, uh, in the evening when we are at home, uh, I will be sitting selecting something from the DVR to watch and my wife will watch TV and work on the computer and do the Facebook thing, you know. Some of you do the Facebook thing or the email thing and all that. And it's pretty common for her to be talking maybe to, uh, especially our daughter in eastern Washington. And one day I sat down to watch my TV show and I had a little snack. And <laughs> she's pecking away over there on the computer and pretty soon gets a big laugh back from Molly. You see, I was eating fat-free yogurt with whipped cream. <laughs> That's my idea of a balanced snack, see? <laughs> and she told this to Molly, and Molly emailed back, baby steps. <laughs> That's the way I diet. Could you tell? You know, if safe weight loss is one half to two pounds a week, I want to be extra careful and maybe just make it a quarter of a pound a week. <laughs> but at some point, if you're going to lose weight, you have to make a decision and change your behavior. As we come to the Gospel of John today, we're going to look at the death of Christ and the resulting change of behavior that came to some men. So men decided that it was time for them to stop living in the closet as Christians and come out and be known as disciples of Christ. Follow as I read from John 19, please, starting in verse 31. Ah, I had the wrong page there. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We've talked about that before. A person would hang on the cross sometime for days and days, and they died of asphyxiation because they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. And so if they wanted to speed up their death, they would break their legs, and, and they would not be able to push themselves up and breathe, and it would hasten their death. The Jews wanted this to happen because it was a holy day, and they shouldn't have a body hanging on the cross and so on. Verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified. This is John talking about himself in the third person. He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And then another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Now John is telling you, I saw this happen. John was an eyewitness, and I believe that John saw this happen also. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. 
And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We want to look, first of all, at the description of these two men. Joseph of Arimathea. Now, don't be confused. This is not Joseph who was betrothed to Mary, the mother of Christ. This is a whole different man. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels and only in connection with this event. Matthew puts it like this. Now when the evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Mark puts it this way. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Luke puts it this way. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision or deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. John talks about Nicodemus this way in John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and of course we know the rest of John chapter 3. Now later, Nicodemus is also mentioned in John 7. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night. Do you get the idea that that was an important fact to bring in every time he's mentioned? He who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. These two men were significant men in their time and in their place. Uh, They were members of the council or the Sanhedrin, as you might be more familiar with that term. So those men who made the decision to arrest Christ and have him crucified, they were part of that body. Nicodemus is also referred to as a teacher or possibly the highest teacher of Israel. Joseph is called a rich man. Uh, I would have no doubt that Nicodemus would have also been at least on the upper side of upper middle class, if not rich as well, because of their position in Israel. So here are two men who are highly respected and well off financially, but they were in the closet as Christ followers. It's clearly mentioned throughout. That's why he who came to Jesus by night, this is mentioned over and over. They were clearly in the closet. They were hiding. They didn't want people to know. Joseph and Nicodemus had succumbed to a temptation that confronts every disciple of Christ sooner or later. And I might say not just sooner or later, but it repeatedly tempts every disciple of Christ. And that temptation is the fear of man. Turn back to John chapter 9, please. John chapter 9. 
That baby's going to have a special room. Maybe this week we'll get it done. Room back there with the glass on it. It's going to be the comfort room. It's not the cry room. It's the comfort room. And we should have the sound system working in there next week so you'll have a place to go. But until then, it doesn't bother me, so you don't worry about it. John chapter 9, verse 8. Therefore the neighbors, this is a, there was a man who was born blind, he was healed by Jesus, this is the one where he made the mud on his, he made the mud and put it on the man's eyes and said, go and wash. Let's pick up the story, verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him, or he looks like him. He said, I'm he, I'm the guy. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, I understand that the Pharisees were a, they were a, a religious sect of the Jews, if you will. It was a distinctive group. But the, the, the overlap between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the Sanhedrin, these men overlapped to a great degree. And you'll see what I mean about the effect of this in a minute. Verse 14, Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again, asked the blind man that was healed, asked him again, How had he received his sight? He said to him, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, just as a side note, in case you don't know, they made up rules about keeping the Sabbath. And one of them specifically was you can't spit on the ground because when you spit, it makes mud, and that's tilling the soil, and that's farming, and that's working, and you can't do it on the Sabbath. Now, of course, what was going on is they were just against Jesus. But this was one of their rules. It was not God's rule. It was their rule. So he said, he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and we know he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is an adult. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And usually when it's written that way, it means the leaders. It's not they feared the Jewish people. They feared the leaders of the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed, if anybody said Jesus is the Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, I read that to help you understand the environment in which Nicodemus and Joseph were living. They might have been in this very group that was talking to this man. 
At the very least, they were aware that the leadership had said, if anybody looks at Jesus and said, he is the Messiah, you are going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, what did that mean to them? What that meant to them was to be excluded from the social community and to be excluded from the religious community. Their affiliation with the synagogue in their town was the hub of their life as Jewish people. Um, it would be similar today if, if we said to someone, you can't come to church and nobody at church will talk to you or do business with you. And when they see you on the street, they're going to walk the other direction. I mean, it's just a, an extreme kind of excommunication. And this was a formal decision by the leadership group. If you confess Christ, boom, you're out of here. There's the door, buddy. And so here's Joseph and Nicodemus living in that. They're rich. They're prominent. Nicodemus is a student of the Old Testament. And because of that, they stayed in the closet. They kept their spiritual heads down. And they didn't stick their neck out to let anybody know that they were starting to think, I think this Jesus just might be the Messiah we've been looking for. When the topic came up, they just kind of receded back, maybe changed the subject, whatever they could do to keep their head down because they did not want to lose, they didn't want to lose what they had over here. They had all of this, of this world, of the social connection, of, of all kinds of things in their life. And here's Christ. And so they rode the fence. They rode the fence. But there came, there came a decision for them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. These men appear, from what we can see in the scripture, it, it would appear that they stayed in the closet spiritually until the death of Christ. And as best we can tell, the time when they really came out and said, we're disciples, was at the death of Christ. They watched Christ suffer. They watched the whole, even by, by the standards under which their society ran, even under those standards, Jesus was unjustly tried and executed. Not to mention the whole idea of ultimate truth. In other words, Nicodemus was a student of the Old Testament and he saw Jesus and he clearly came to the conclusion, this guy is the man, this is truth, regardless of what society says. But by society standards and by the Bible, they came to a point where they said, we can't stay in the closet anymore. No more baby steps. It's time to come out and let the world know that they're followers of Christ. Again, Mark put it this way, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. That's an Old Testament concept. He came and he took courage. I think the King, the King James says that he boldly went and asked. He took courage and he went into Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. We don't hear the exact truths that informed Joseph's decision to be courageous, finally. 
But we see that he decided to stop being afraid. He was afraid, but here he said, no, I'm going to be courageous. So the question that I want to ask and try to answer from the scripture is, what was he thinking about when he was finally able to get his courage together and do the right thing? Well, I think he had to be thinking about the message of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house the devil, Beelzebub, another name for the devil, if they have called the master of the house the devil, how much more will they call those of his household the devil? Therefore, therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetop. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven." I think there are several truths that Joseph and, and, and Nicodemus finally realized. I'm, I've written my notes just in terms of Joseph, but I think they both realized it. Joseph finally realized that persecution is unavoidable. Persecution is unavoidable. Jesus said, look, do you think you're going to have a better go at this than I did? We all know that Jesus lived a perfect life. So he never made anybody angry in an unrighteous way. We do that sometimes. We, we do a business deal or we have a bad morning or whatever it is and, and we're, we're mean to people, we're harsh to people and they get upset with us and that happens with unbelievers as well as believers. But Jesus never did that. He lived a perfect life and, and he perfectly taught God's truth and yet the result was some people hated him to death and they called him Beelzebub. They said, you, this man does miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, look, if they said, I'm of the devil, they're going to say you're of the devil. It is inevitable. Persecution for the Christian is as certain as the failings of the human body in old age. It's as certain as a baby getting hungry and wanting to eat. It's as certain as a teenager running out of money and gasoline. It's as certain as the Seahawks having a bad season from time to time. It's just going to happen. Jesus said, persecution is going to happen. Why do we think <laughs> that we're going to be the first person to ever walk right on that line and make God happy and man happy? Jesus said, it's not going to happen. Joseph and Nicodemus appear to be trying, they were trying to walk on that, on that center line. But it can't be done. Jesus said, it's going to happen. 
Have you come to grips with the reality of persecution, Christian? The news shows are not going to be favorable to us. I'm telling you, if we live perfect lives, they will not be favorable to us. And then every once in a while, somebody's going to do something stupid, like some of our Baptist friends who are trying to do something good, apparently, in Haiti. Stupid. We don't need that. We're going to get heat without that kind of stuff. All we have to do is say, Jesus is the only way to heaven to make people angry. But it's going to happen, and we have got to come to grips with it. You know, I don't live my life hoping for persecution. I don't get up in the morning and go, man, I sure hope somebody abuses me today. Don't get me wrong. But when somebody is unhappy with what I say or believe, and and it's because of Christ, I'm not shocked. Remember one time at McDonald's, somebody who I barely have talked to there, not my good friend Al, we argue about stuff too, but not in the same way. They read something in the paper and they just lit up on Christians. And clearly they knew I was one of them, a couple of tables away, and I'm going, lady, what have I ever done to you? (laughs) Really? I just thought, wow. Um, We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when the movies depict us in a bad light. People of all cultures and nationalities will remember our worst deeds and overlook our best ones. What about the Crusades? Yeah, they were wicked. Christians. What about, what about, what about, what about? Do you think you're going to be the first one to straddle that fence? Have you ever, you know, uh, trustees are really worried about me falling off here. It'll happen someday. You ever, have you ever walked along a little, little narrow thing there? You know, you get a little wall or something. It's just a matter of time until you fall one way or the other. I mean, even the people who walk on the high wire fall off. You cannot straddle this fence. If you're not a believer here today, and you are struggling coming to Christ because you think it may be hard, you're right. It will be hard. There will be persecution. But if you have to fall off that fence, wouldn't you rather fall off on the Jesus side than the non-Jesus side? Joseph finally realized that persecution is unavoidable. Number two, he finally realized that eternity matters more than temporality. Forgive me for alliterating, but it's also the best word. You know what temporary means? Temporary means something that doesn't last that long. Uh, Temporary is how long Christmas lasts. Uh, You know, the presents are gone and so on. Temporary is how long you get to slack off after you get a good grade. You know, you get to slack off until the next quarter starts. Temporary is how long you're not hungry after dinner if you're a teenager. Temporality. We live in temporality. There's nothing permanent about the world around us. In fact, God says he's going to burn up the whole thing and start over at some point in the future. Um, 
you know, this, this month's project is a new microwave range hood. And there is nothing that is right about the old one. Not the pipe, not the roof, not nothing. I've got to work through that whole thing. And you know what? If I live there long enough, I'll do it again. Because stuff falls apart. We live in temporality. But Joseph finally realized that eternity matters more than temporality. Eternity, our life with God. I know it's a silly question, but how long is eternity? It is forever. In verse 26 of Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear them who can only kill the body and not the soul, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed Nothing hidden that will not be known. You know what Jesus was saying? He says, guys, there's going, to be a, there's going to be a report card someday. There is going to be an accounting for your life someday. And part of that report card, if you will, starts with heaven or hell. Look at verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. Do you know that it's possible to be so afraid of men, of women, of humanity, that you will go to hell? And if that's the case, then you have not grasped the difference between temporality and eternity. You can have the esteem of humankind... We can look all around us at people that are highly esteemed by humankind. And you can have that right up until the day you die. And it won't matter a lick. Because when eternity starts, the rules change. And the first rule is this. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. In other words, when you die, it's either heaven or hell. Boom, right there, right now. No no more, no more discussing it. There's no second chance. There's no extended stay in a place where maybe you'll make it to heaven, maybe you won't. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, since Joseph was called a disciple by those scriptures that we read, we would understand that as he listened to Christ, he became a follower. He became a believer. And yet he was still in the closet. And so he had gotten this idea squared away, and yet he still was unwilling. And so I would understand that in his discipleship, he was waffling. Waffling in his dedication, perhaps waffling in his faith, and not fully a believer yet. He was a follower of Christ, and yet he was unwilling to come out. At some point as a Christian, at some point as a, as a human, we have to decide that Christ is the Messiah and we have to decide that we're going to live for him because the reality of our life as a Christian is this when we get to eternity. For no other foundation can anyone lay except that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You can't make it into eternity without him. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation as a Christian, if they build either gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. 
And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There's a danger in what I'm about to say, and the danger is that some of you will take it to excess. It's possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and not to serve him. There's a sense in which I would say Joseph and Nicodemus were those kind of believers. I don't know how long they were believers before the day of Christ's death. But they were believers who clearly were hiding themselves, not wanting to let people know what they really thought. And if you're that kind of a believer, what you're building in your life is wood, hay, and straw, not gold, silver, and precious stone. Because God says we need to come right out and confess him publicly. Now, the danger in me saying that is this. It's possible that you fear man so much that you really don't even believe. And you only know that. I don't know. And so my first challenge to you today is this. Are you holding back from being public about your Christianity because of what mankind thinks? If that's the case, you ought to be concerned. Because Jesus said, if you're unwilling to confess me before man, I am not going to confess you before my Father. And if I understand that correctly, what it means is, when you're presented, he's going to go away with him. I never knew him. That's a dangerous thought. I don't want any of you to be there. I, I, I hope you don't think that I'm trying to guilt you into some decision. I'm trying to, trying to exhort you. Okay? Now, if you really have come to faith in Christ but you've stayed in the closet, then you need to understand you're not serving the Lord. You're not serving the Lord. You're serving yourself. The very fact that you're staying in a place that you think is safe is because of what you want for you. Christ says, come out. Come out. In eternity where we will be forever, we will be recognized by God for our service or our life will be shown to have been ours, that is, live for self. He says it's possible for you to be saved, and, but your works to be burned up, you will suffer loss, but you will still be saved. The old song Will there be any stars, any stars in my crown when I lay my heavy burden down? comes from the idea in Revelation that says God's going to give us a crown of reward. But will there, will there even be a crown or a star in it? Friends, eternity is what matters, not temporality. And we really need to ask ourselves, am I building for eternity, first and foremost, by being public as a Christian? When the God-hating co-worker fires up the criticism machine and starts blaming believers for all the problems in our country, do you slink away quietly or do you gracefully, kindly share the truth about Christ. When that teacher says, 
no thinking person believes in creation. When you're in fifth grade and the teacher publicly ridicules you for being a creationist, do you march right up there and tell them what you think? Or do you just put your head down? When the boys are taking God's name in vain or the girls are cussing and swearing, do you join in or do you walk away? When young people are talking about losing their virginity as though it is a trophy of manhood or womanhood, do you speak up for abstinence and they make fun of you? Do you mention your love for Christ or do you mumble something about your parents? Well, my parents don't want me to do that. No credit. Christ doesn't want you to do that. When someone tries to get you to be dishonest or to break the law, do you name the name of Christ or do you talk about not wanting to get caught? Do you think you will stand in front of Christ while he reviews your life and proudly claim these moments when you were ashamed of his name? I think we know how that's going to go. Joseph said, you know what matters? What matters is eternity. And you can read the books about martyrs, current or past. You know, uh, um, not Samuel. What's his son? Timothy. Timothy Sidhu, who was here. If you didn't hear the stories, you should, about people trying to kill him because he preaches the truth. He lives in a... Uh, he lives in a, and I won't even say the word here, but he lives in a country with a majority religious that are very terroristic in their approach to life. Or in an area that's that way. And they tr- they've tried to kill him on several th- accounts. One of, one of the most creative I've ever heard is the two microphones that sit in front of him when he, when he speaks the radio, on the radio. And they, they put those with extension cords. And they set them far away so he'd have to grab them and bring them up close to speak on the radio. And he said if he hadn't shaken so violently that it pulled the plug out of the wall, he would have died. And you know what he did? He went right back and preached on the radio the next chance he got. He could have slunk away. Protect himself. He has a family to care for. You are not going to face that. All you're going to face is somebody going, you're a Christian? And yet we're more scared of that than we are the electricity. God help us. Joseph realized something else. Joseph finally realized that he could rest in God's care. Look at Matthew 10. In in Jesus' message about standing up to persecution and, and realizing that it will come, look what he says in verse 29. Are not two sparrows, or let's back at verse 28. Don't fear those who can only kill your body, but cannot kill your soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear. 
therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. You see what Jesus said? He said, look, one of the smallest transactions that goes on here is people selling a couple of sparrows for one little coin. It's just a diddly little transaction. He says, sparrows aren't hardly worth anything. He said, but your father knows when one of them falls to the ground. He's saying, look, if you stand up for me, God is going to care for you. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have a problem-free life. God knew in this situation with Joseph that Joseph was risking financial ruin. God knew Joseph was about to lose a bunch of friends. God knew that Joseph was risking physical abuse, just like Jesus had suffered. God knows persecution is hard. God knows how deep the wounds of pride run when people make fun of us. God knows how scary it is to put a relationship or a job or a position in jeopardy in order to be true to Christ. But listen to the results of of, of throwing yourself on God's care. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Would you rather have the safety that you can create or the safety that God creates? See, I I just, I'm silly enough to think that's the best safety. Or how about this? The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich. So uh, what that means to me is, if I live in God's way, there will be a blessing that follows God's way. It may not be the blessing I'm seeking, but there will be a blessing that comes with it. And that blessing comes with no sorrow attached. What's a blessing with sorrow attached? Oh, how about you get a promotion at work because you keep your mouth shut about Jesus, but your coworker dies and goes to hell? Would you, if you knew ahead of time that was the choice you were going to make, would you make that choice? I hope not. But sometimes we say, I have to have this. I have to have that. I have to have this person. I have to have this situation. I've got to have this blessing that I can create. God says, hey, I'll give you a blessing and there'll be no sorrow with it. It'll be a pure blessing, whatever it is. Wow, what a great promise. Do you know what the word blessing means in the Old Testament? And these these verses come from the Old Testament. There's a trick here. You know what the word blessing means? It means happy It does. It's the root meaning of the word. You want to be happy? Follow God's path. Walk with God, and no matter what, let God give you his happiness. There's one more thing that Joseph learned. Joseph finally realized that one good friend was better than a dozen lousy ones. Do you realize there were two guys burying Christ? Joseph and Nicodemus. Two guys working together. They were both from the highest level of leadership. They were most likely both wealthy. We know one of them was. And with that in mind, would you listen to this again? I just love this. Nicodemus, now this is in the environment of this leadership group that are trying to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? In other words, they had already said, how can we put him to death? And he said, wait a minute, we should give him a fair hearing. 
They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Who else was listening while Nicodemus was talking? Joseph of Arimathea. They were both out of the council. They would have both been there. And Nicodemus got his courage up about that much. And instead of saying, you know, if he really wanted to stick his neck up, he would have went, I think this Jesus is the Messiah and we should give him a real fair look over. Instead, he just said, now, in the law, don't we give people a hearing first? But even that much. Here's Joseph over here going, dude, I wish I had the courage to do that. I, in my sanctified imagination, I imagine that it was something like this in 1 Samuel 18.1. Now when, he had, when David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Do you know when that verse occurs in the Old Testament? It occurs after David came in and said, Hey, what's up with this big dude insulting God? Let's go after him. And David ran after him and killed him. And then he took his sword and cut off his head. And the rest of the people got courage and ran and won the battle. And after that, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, looked at David and went, This is the guy I've been waiting for. This is a man who loves the Lord. And their souls were knit together. Man, what, a, what an incredible thing. I think that's what happened with Nicodemus and Joseph. Because it can't be an accident that the two of them, two guys who we know were in the closet, they're together and there's no other members of the council there burying the Lord. Christian, you are not alone in standing for Christ, no matter how lonely it may seem when you do it. At the very least... You have a room full of allies here. And if you aren't in a, a small group of some kind where you can connect better with people, you need to be that. Because in some way, we need to see this as a field hospital where you go out and do battle for the Lord, kindly, graciously, and you come back in and lick your wounds. And you come back in and say, Oh man, you won't believe it, I... I I, I said such and such to my boss this week, and he just came unglued all over me. And your friend is going to go, dude, it's okay. That's the way it is. And there's going to be encouragement and blessing and, and strengthening. That's part of what the church ought to be. We get beat up once in a while. Maybe we even get shot. And we come back here, get care for our wounds, and get a hot meal and a shower and go back out into the battle. And often... Often, God will go beyond the help of these walls and send you a Nicodemus or a Joseph to come together with you to help you in your stand. But you'll never find him if you won't stand up. If you won't stick your head up, if you won't come out of the closet, you'll never find that man or that woman because they're in the closet too. And they're waiting to see somebody else. Kurt Warner, retired this year from football. This is a picture from this year, last year sometime. Uh, Kurt Warner's a Christian, and he has chosen...
to behave in ways that draw attention to the fact that he is a Christian because he has a goal, which is to live for the Lord and to speak up for the Lord, not to be famous. And so he carries his Bible to every post-game, or he carried his Bible to every post-game interview. Here, I'm Kurt Warner. What's your questions? Here's, a re, here's a, an editorial written uh, from the uh, Washington Post, written about the 2009 Super Bowl game. Kurt Warner and his holy bowlers, instead of his Super Bowlers. I'm beginning to wonder if God is playing in Super Bowl, and I can't read the number, XL33, whatever. Sorry, I'm not enough of a football man to know the numbers. The Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers. I had avoided participating in the faith talk surrounding the Super Bowl, but after a week of Kurt Warner carrying his Bible everywhere stories, I can't help myself. I'm tired of listening to Warner and his evangelical cohort sell Jesus to the masses. Warner's faith has garnered the most media attention. It is clearly a major part of who he is, and it shouldn't be ignored. Perhaps it is what has made him such a successful quarterback. But Warner is using his platform to sell Christianity to the millions of people watching him. If he said the shoes he wear make him the quarterback he is, would the writers be so eager to have the manufacturer of those shoes get the same free advertising they're giving God? This person is angry that God's getting some press. I'm not saying sports writers should ignore Warner's faith, but they should challenge him on it, just as they are doing when he throws an interception. Just because he's talking about religion, a subject that makes many people uncomfortable, they shouldn't give him a free pass to promote whatever he wants. There's a man. There's a man that you'd do well to hang around with, and not because he's a great football player. Because here's a guy who didn't, he doesn't have to carry his Bible the press conference? God didn't even say you have to do that. You don't have to carry your Bible every day to work. But he has chosen to say, you know what? I have a platform. Why shouldn't I use it for the Lord? Everybody else pushes their thing. And so he takes heat for it. I'd call taking your Bible to every press conference, living out of the closet. And that's what we need to do. However God leads you to it, whatever your circumstances, let's covenant together to live out of the closet this week. Heavenly Father, help us. We are chickens. We're afraid of what people will say. We're afraid of the things we might lose. And some of those fears are probably quite real and quite uh, rational. But Father, help us to realize that if we're going to be your disciples, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, it's going to happen, and you're going to take care of us, and you're going to provide for our needs. Father, help us to live for you this week, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.